Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 7 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal. Saturday, May the 13th, 1854. Chapter 13 A candle faintly burned in the window to which the black ladder had often been raised for the sliding away of all that was most precious in this world to a striving wife and a brood of hungry babies. And Stephen added to his other thoughts the stern reflection that of all the casualties of this existence upon earth not one was dealt out with so unequal a hand as death. The inequality of birth was nothing to it. For say that the child of a king and the child of a weaver were born to-night in the same moment, what was that disparity to the death of any human creature who was serviceable to, or beloved by another, while this abandoned woman lived on? From the outside of his home he gloomily passed to the inside, with suspended breath and with a slow footstep. He went up to his door, opened it, and so into the room. Quiet and peace were there, Rachel was there, sitting by the bed. She turned her head, and the light of her face shone in upon the midnight of his mind. She sat by the bed, watching and tending his wife. That is to say, he saw that someone lay there, and he knew too well it must be she. But Rachel's hands had put a curtain up, so that she was screened from his eyes. Her disgraceful garments were removed, and some of Rachel's were in the room. Everything was in its place and order as he had always kept it, and the little fire was newly trimmed and the hearth was freshly swept. It appeared to him that he saw all this in Rachel's face and looked at nothing besides. While looking at it, it was shut out from his view by the softened tears that filled his eyes, but not before he had seen how earnestly she looked at him and how her own eyes were filled too. She turned again towards the bed and satisfying herself that all was quiet there, spoke in a low, calm, cheerful voice. "'I'm glad you've come at last, Stephen. You're very late. I've been walking up and down. I thought so, but tis too bad a night for that. The rain falls very heavy, and the wind has risen.' The wind? True, it was blowing hard. Hark to the thundering in the chimney and the surging noise. To have been out in such a wind and not to have known it was blowing. I've been here once before to-day, Stephen. Landlady came round for me at dinner-time. There was someone here that needed looking to, she said. Indeed, she was right. All wandering and lost, Stephen. Wounded, too, and bruised. He slowly moved to a chair and sat down, drooping his head before her. I came to do what little I could, Stephen. First, for that she worked with me when we were girls both and for that you courted her and married her when I was her friend. He laid his furrowed forehead on his hand with a low groan. And next, for that I know your heart, and I am right sure and certain that tis far too merciful to let her die, or even so much as suffer for want of aid. 
thou knowest who said let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone at her there have been plenty to do that thou art not the man to cast the last stone stephen when she's brought so low oh rachel rachel thou's been a cruel sufferer heaven reward thee she said in compassionate accents i am thy poor friend with all my heart and mind the wounds of which she had spoken seemed to be about the neck of the self-made outcast she dressed them now still without showing her she steeped a piece of linen in a basin into which she poured some liquid from a bottle and laid it with a gentle hand upon the sore the three-legged table had been drawn close to the bedside and on it there were two bottles this was one it was not so far off but that stephen following her hands with his eyes could read what was printed on it in large letters he turned of a deadly hue and a sudden horror seemed to fall upon him i will stay here stephen said rachel quietly resuming her seat till the bells go three tis to be done again at three and then she may be left till morning but thy rest again to-morrow's work me dear i slept sound last night i can wake many nights when i'm put to it tis thou who art in need of rest so white and tired try to sleep in th chair there while i watch thou hadst no sleep last night i can well believe to-morrow's work is far harder for thee than for me he heard the thundering and surging out of doors and it seemed to him as if his late angry mood were going about trying to get at him she had cast it out she would keep it out he trusted to her to defend him from himself she don't know me stephen she just drowsily mutters and stares i've spoken to her times and again but she don't notice tis as well so when she comes to her right mind once more i shall have done what i can and she never the wiser how long rachel it's looked for that she'll be sore doctor said she would happily come to her mind to-morrow his eyes again fell on the bottle and a tremble passed over him causing him to shiver in every limb she thought he was chilled with the wet no he said it was not that he had had a fright a fright ay coming in when i were walking when i were thinking when i it seized him again and he stood up holding by the mantel-shelf as he pressed his dank cold hair down with a hand that shook as if it were palsied stephen she was coming to him but he stretched out his arm to stop her no don't please don't let me see thee settin by the bed let me see thee all so good and so forgiving let me see thee as i see thee when i come in i can never see thee better than so never 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 he had a violent fit of trembling and then sunk into his chair after a time he controlled himself and resting with an elbow on one knee and his head upon that hand could look towards rachel seen across the dim candle with his moistened eyes she looked as if she had a glory shining round her head he could have believed she had he did believe it as the noise without shook the window rattled at the door below and went about the house clamouring and lamenting when she gets better stephen tis to be hoped she will leave thee to thyself again and do thee no more hurt anyways we will hope so now and now i shall keep silence for i want thee to sleep he closed his eyes more to please her than to rest his weary head but 
by slow degrees as he listened to the great noise of the wind he ceased to hear it or it changed into the working of his loom or even into the voices of the day his own included saying what had been really said even this imperfect consciousness faded away at last and he dreamed a long troubled dream he thought that he and someone on whom his heart had long been set but she was not rachel and that surprised him even in the midst of his imaginary happiness stood in the church being married while the ceremony was performing and while he recognized among the witnesses some whom he knew to be living and many whom he knew to be dead darkness came on succeeded by the shining of a tremendous light it broke from one line in the table of commandments at the altar and illuminated the building with the words they were sounded through the church too as if there were voices in the fiery letters upon this the whole appearance before him and around him changed and nothing was left as it had been but himself and the clergyman they stood in the daylight before a crowd so vast that if all the people in the world could have been brought together into one space they could not have looked he thought more numerous and they all abhorred him and there was not one pitying or friendly eye among the millions that were fastened on his face he stood on a raised stage under his own loom and looking up at the shape the loom took and hearing the burial service distinctly read he knew that he was there to suffer death in an instant what he stood on fell below him and he was gone out of what mystery he came back to his usual life and to places that he knew he was unable to consider but he was back in those places by some means and with this condemnation upon him that he was never in this world or the next through all the unimaginable ages of eternity to look on rachel's face or hear her voice wandering to and fro unceasingly without hope and in search of he knew not what he only knew that he was doomed to seek it he was the subject of a nameless horrible dread a mortal fear of one particular shape which everything took whatsoever he looked at grew into that form sooner or later the object of his miserable existence was to prevent its recognition by any one among the various people he encountered hopeless labour if he led them out of rooms where it was if he shut up drawers and closets where it stood if he drew the curious from places where he knew it to be secreted and got them out into the streets the very chimneys of the mills assumed that shape and round them was the printed word the wind was blowing again the rain was beating on the housetops and the larger spaces through which he had strayed contracted to the four walls of his room saving that the fire had died out it was as his eyes had closed upon it rachel seemed to have fallen into a doze in the chair by the bed she sat wrapped in her shawl perfectly still the table stood in the same place close by the bedside and on it in its real proportions and appearance was the shape so often repeated he thought he saw the curtain move he looked again and he was sure it moved he saw a hand come forth and grope about a little then the curtain moved more perceptibly and the woman in the bed put it back and sat up with her woeful eyes so haggard and wild so heavy and large she looked all round the room and passed the corner where he slept in his chair her eyes returned to that corner and she put her hand over them as a shade while she looked into it again they went all round the room 
scarcely heeding Rachel if at all, and returned to that corner. He thought, as she once more shaded them, not so much looking at him as looking for him with a brutish instinct that he was there, that no single trace was left in those debauched features, or in the mind that went along with them, of the woman he had married eighteen years before. But that he had seen her come to this by inches, he never could have believed her to be the same. All this time, as if a spell were on him, he was motionless and powerless, except to watch her. Stupidly dozing or communing with her incapable self about nothing, she sat for a little while with her hands at her ears, and her head resting on them. Presently she resumed her staring round the room, and now, for the first time, her eyes stopped at the table with the bottles on it. Straightway she turned her eyes back to his corner, with the defiance of last night, and, moving very cautiously and softly, stretched out her greedy hand. She drew a mug into the bed, and sat for a while, considering which of the two bottles she should choose. Finally, she laid her insensate grasp upon the bottle that had swift and certain death in it, and, before his eyes, pulled out the cork with her teeth. Dream or reality, he had no voice, nor had he power to stir. If this be real, and her allotted time be not yet come, wake, Rachel, wake! She thought of that too. She looked at Rachel, and very slowly, very cautiously, poured out the contents. The draught was at her lips. A moment and she would be past all help, let the whole world wake and come about her with its utmost power. But at that moment Rachel started up with a suppressed cry. The creature struggled, struck her, seized her by the hair, but Rachel had the cup. Stephen broke out of his chair. Rachel, am I waking or dreaming this dreadful night? Tis all well, Stephen. I've been asleep myself. Tis near three. Hush, I hear the bells. The wind brought the sounds of the church clock to the window. They listened and it struck three. Stephen looked at her, saw how pale she was, noted the disorder of her hair and the red marks of fingers on her forehead, and felt assured that his senses of sight and hearing had been awake. She held the cup in her hand even now. I thought it must be near three, she said, calmly pouring from the cup into the basin and steeping the linen as before. I am thankful I stayed. Tis done now, when I've put this on. There, and now she's quiet again. The few drops in the basin I'll pour away, but tis bad stuff to leave about, though ever so little of it. As she spoke, she drained the basin into the ashes of the fire, and broke the bottle on the hearth. She had nothing to do then, but to cover herself with her shawl before going out into the wind and rain. Thou let me walk with thee at this hour, Rachel, no, Stephen, tis but a minute and I'm home. Thou'rt not fearful, he said, in a low voice as they went out at the door, to leave me alone with her. As she looked at him, saying, Stephen, he went down on his knee before her, on the poor mean stairs, and put an end of her shawl to his lips. Thou art an angel. Bless thee, bless thee. I am, as I've told thee, Stephen, thy poor friend. Angels are not like me. Between them and a working woman, four faults, there is a deep gulf set. My little sister is among them, but she is changed. She raised her eyes for a moment as she said the words, and then they fell again, 
in all their gentleness and mildness on his face thou changest me from bad to good thou mak'st me humbly wish for to be more like thee and fear for to lose thee when this life is o'er and all th muddle cleared away thou'rt an angel it may be thou hast saved my soul alive she looked at him on his knee at her feet with her shawl still in his hand and the reproof on her lips died away when she saw the working of his face i come home desperate i come home without a hope and mad wi thinking that when i said a word of complaint i was reckoned an unreasonable hand i told thee i had had a fright it were the poison bottle on table i never hurt a living creature but happening so suddenly upon t i thought how can i say what i might have done to me said or her or both she put her two hands on his mouth with a face of terror to stop him from saying more he caught them in his unoccupied hand and holding them and still clasping the border of her shawl said hurriedly but i see thee rachel setten by the bed i ha seen thee all this night in my troublous sleep i ha known thee still to be there evermore i will see thee there i never more will see her or think o her but thou shalt be beside her i never more will see or think o anything that angers me but thou so much better than me shall be by th side on't and so i will try to look to the time and so i will try to trust to the time when thou and me at last shall walk together far away beyond the deep gulf in the country where thy little sister is he kissed the border of her shawl again and let her go she bade him good-night in a broken voice and went out into the street the wind blew from the quarter where the day would soon appear and still blew strongly it had cleared the sky before it and the rain had spent itself or travelled elsewhere and the stars were bright he stood bareheaded in the road watching her quick disappearance as the shining stars were to the heavy candle in the window so was rachel in the rugged fancy of this man to the common experiences of his life chapter fourteen time went on in coketown like its own machinery so much material wrought up so much fuel consumed so many powers worn out so much money made but less inexorable than iron steel and brass it brought its varying seasons even into that wilderness of smoke and brick and made the only stand that ever was made in the place against its direful uniformity louisa is becoming said mr gradgrind almost a young woman time with his innumerable horse-power worked away not minding what anybody said and presently turned out young thomas a foot taller than when his father had last taken particular notice of him thomas is becoming said mr gradgrind almost a young man time passed thomas on in the mill while his father was thinking about it and there he stood in a long tail-coat and a stiff shirt-collar really said mr gradgrind the period has arrived when thomas ought to go to bounderby time sticking to him passed him on into bounderby's bank made him an inmate of bounderby's house necessitated the purchase of his first razor and exercised him diligently in his calculations relative to number one the same great manufacturer always with an immense variety of work on hand in every stage of development passed sissy onward in his mill 
and worked her up into a very pretty article indeed. "'I fear, Jupe,' said Mr. Gradgrind, "'that your continuance at the school any longer would be useless.' "'I am afraid it would, sir,' Sissy answered with a curtsy. "'I cannot disguise from you, Jupe,' said Mr. Gradgrind, knitting his brow, "'that the result of your probation there has disappointed me, "'has greatly disappointed me. "'You have not acquired under Mr. and Mrs. Machokum, child, "'anything like that amount of exact knowledge which I looked for. "'You are extremely deficient in your facts. "'Your acquaintance with figures is very limited. "'You are altogether backward and below the mark.' "'I'm sorry, sir.' she returned but i know it's quite true yet i have tried hard sir yes said mr gradgrind yes i believe you have tried hard i have observed you and i can find no fault in that respect thank you sir i thought sometimes sissy very timid here that perhaps i tried to learn too much and that if i'd asked to be allowed to try a little less i might have no jupe no said mr gradgrind shaking his head in his profoundest and most eminently practical way no the course you pursued you pursued according to the system the system and there is no more to be said about it i can only suppose that the circumstances of your early life were too unfavourable to the development of your reasoning powers and that we began too late still as i have said already i am disappointed I wish I could have made a better acknowledgement, sir, of your kindness to a poor forlorn girl who had no claim upon you, and of your protection of her. Don't shed tears, said Mr. Gradgrind. Don't shed tears. I don't complain of you. You're an affectionate, earnest, good young woman, and we must make that do. Thank you, sir, very much, said Sissy, with a grateful curtsy. You are useful to Mrs. Gradgrind, and, in a generally pervading way, you are serviceable in the family also. So I understand from Miss Louisa, and indeed, so I have observed myself. I therefore hope, said Mr. Gradgrind, that you can make yourself happy in those relations. I should have nothing to wish, sir, if... I understand you, said Mr. Gradgrind. You still refer to your father. I have heard from Miss Louisa that you still preserve that bottle. Well, if your training in the science of arriving at exact results had been more successful... You would have been wiser on those points. I will say no more. He really liked Sissy too well to have a contempt for her. Otherwise he held her calculating powers in such very slight estimation that he must have fallen upon that conclusion. Somehow or other he had become possessed by an idea that there was something in this girl which could hardly be set forth in a tabular form. Her capacity of definition might be easily stated at a very low figure, her mathematical knowledge at nothing, yet he was not sure that if he had been required, for example, to tick her off into columns in a parliamentary return, he would have quite known how to divide her. In some stages of his manufacture of the human fabric, the processes of time are very rapid. Young Thomas and Sissy being both at such a stage of their working up, these changes were effected in a year or two, while Mr. Gradgrind himself seemed stationary in his course and underwent no alteration, except one which was apart from his necessary progress through the mill. Time hustled him into a little noisy and rather dirty machinery in a by-corner and made him Member of Parliament for Coketown, one of the respected members for ounce weights and measures, one of the representatives of the multiplication table, one of the deaf honourable gentlemen, dumb honourable gentlemen, 
blind honourable gentleman, lame honourable gentleman, dead honourable gentleman, to every other consideration. Else whereof live we in a Christian land, eighteen hundred and odd years after our master. All this while Louisa had been passing on, so quiet and reserved, and so much given to watching the bright ashes at twilight, as they fell into the grate and became extinct, that from the period when her father had said she was almost a young woman, which seemed but yesterday, she had scarcely attracted his notice again, when he found her quite a young woman. "'Quite a young woman,' said Mr. Gradgrind, musing. "'Dear me!' Soon after this discovery, he became more thoughtful than usual for several days, and seemed much engrossed by one subject. On a certain night when he was going out, and Louisa came to bid him good-bye before his departure, as he was not to be home again until late, and she would not see him again until the morning, he held her in his arms, looking at her in his kindest manner, and said, "'My dear Louisa, you are a woman.' She answered with the old, quick, searching look of the night when she was found at the circus, then cast down her eyes. "'Yes, father.' "'My dear,' said Mr. Gradgrind, "'I must speak with you alone and seriously. "'Come to me in my room after breakfast to-morrow, will you?' "'Yes, father.' "'Your hands are rather cold, Louisa. "'Are you not well?' "'Quite well, father.' "'And cheerful?' "'She looked at him again, "'and smiled in her peculiar manner. "'I'm as cheerful, father, as I usually am, "'or usually have been.' "'That's well,' said Mr. Gradgrind. "'So he kissed her and went away.' So Louisa returned to the serene apartment of the hair-cutting character, and leaning her elbow on her hand, looked again at the short-lived sparks that so soon subsided into ashes. "'Are you there, Lou?' said her brother, looking in at the door. He was quite a young gentleman of pleasure now, and not quite a prepossessing one. "'Dear Tom,' she answered, rising and embracing him, "'how long it is since you've been to see me!' "'Why, I've been otherwise engaged, Lou, in the evenings, "'and in the daytime old Bounderby has been keeping me at it rather, "'but I touch him up with you when he comes it too strong, "'and so we preserve an understanding. "'I say, has father said anything particular to you to-day, "'or yesterday, Lou?' "'No, Tom, but he told me to-night that he wished to do so in the morning.' "'Ah, that's what I mean,' said Tom. "'Do you know where he is to-night?' "'With a very deep expression.' no then i'll tell you he's with old bounderby they're having a regular confab together up at the bank why at the bank do you think well i'll tell you again to keep mrs sparsit's ears as far off as possible i expect with her hand upon her brother's shoulder louisa still stood looking at the fire her brother glanced at her face with greater interest than usual and encircling her waist with his arm drew her coaxingly to him you are very fond of me, aren't you, Lou? Indeed I am, Tom, though you do let such long intervals go by without coming to see me. Well, sister of mine, said Tom, when you say that, you are near my thoughts. We might be so much oftener together, mightn't we? Always together, almost, mightn't we? It would do me a great deal of good if you were to make up your mind to, I know what, Lou. It would be a splendid thing for me. It would be uncommonly jolly. Her thoughtfulness baffled his cunning scrutiny. He could make nothing of her face. He pressed her in his arm and kissed her cheek. She returned the kiss, but still looked at the fire. "'I say, Lou, 
i thought i'd come and just hint to you what was going on though i supposed you'd most likely guess even if you didn't know i can't stay because i'm engaged to some fellows to-night you won't forget how fond you are of me no dear tom i won't forget that's a capital girl said tom good-bye lou she gave him an affectionate good-night and went out with him to the door whence the fires of coketown could be seen making the distance lurid she stood there looking steadfastly towards them and listening to his departing steps they retreated quickly as glad to get away from stone lodge and she stood there yet when he was gone and all was quiet it seemed as if first in her own fire within the house and then in the fiery haze without she tried to discover what kind of woof old time that greatest and longest established spinner of all would weave from the threads he had already spun into a woman but his factory is a secret place his work is noiseless and his hands are mutes end of part 7part 8 of hard times by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain from household words a weekly journal saturday may the 20th 1854 chapter 15 although mr gragrind did not take after bluebeard his room was quite a blue chamber in its abundance of blue books whatever they could prove which is usually anything you like they proved there in an army constantly strengthening by the arrival of new recruits in that charmed apartment the most complicated social questions were cast up got into exact totals and finally settled if those concerned could only have been brought to know it as if an astronomical observatory should be made without any windows and the astronomer within should arrange the starry universe solely by pen ink and paper so mr gradgrind in his observatory and there are many like it had no need to cast an eye upon the teeming myriads of human beings around him but could settle all their destinies on a slate and wipe out all their tears with one dirty little bit of sponge to this observatory then a stern room with a deadly statistical clock in it which measured every second with a beat like a rap upon a coffin lid louisa repaired on the appointed morning the window looked towards coketown and when she sat down near her father's table she saw the high chimneys and the long tracks of smoke looming in the heavy distance gloomily my dear louisa said her father i prepared you last night to give me your serious attention in the conversation we are now going to have together you have been so well trained and you do i am happy to say so much justice to the education you have received that i have perfect confidence in your good sense you are not impulsive you are not romantic you are accustomed to view everything from the strong dispassionate ground of reason and calculation from that ground alone i know you will view and consider what i am going to communicate he waited as if he would have been glad that she said something but she said never a word louisa my dear you are the subject of a proposal of marriage that has been made to me again he waited and again she answered not one word this so far surprised him as to induce him gently to repeat a proposal of marriage my dear to which she returned without any visible emotion whatever i hear you father i am attending i assure you well said mr gradgrind breaking into a smile 
after being for the moment at a loss. You are even more dispassionate than I expected, Louisa. Or perhaps you are not unprepared for the announcement I have it in charge to make. I cannot say that, father, until I hear it. Prepared or unprepared, I wish to hear it all from you. I wish to hear you state it to me, father. Strange to relate, Mr. Gradgrind was not so collected at this moment as his daughter was. He took a paper-knife in his hand, turned it over, laid it down, took it up again, and even then had to look along the blade of it, considering how to go on. What you say, my dear Louisa, is perfectly reasonable. I've undertaken, then, to let you know that... that Mr. Bounderby has informed me that he has long watched your progress with particular interest and pleasure, and has long hoped that the time might ultimately arrive when he should offer you his hand in marriage. That time to which he has so long, and certainly with great constancy, looked forward, is now come. Mr. Bounderby has made his proposal of marriage to me, and has entreated me to make it known to you, and to express his hope that you will take it into your favourable consideration. Silence between them. The deadly statistical clock, very hollow. The distant smoke, very black and heavy. Father, said Louisa, do you think I love Mr. Bounderby? Mr. Gradgrind was extremely discomforted by this unexpected question. Well, my child, he returned, I really cannot take upon myself to say. Father, pursued Louisa, in exactly the same voice as before, do you ask me to love Mr. Bounderby? My dear Louisa, no, no, I ask nothing. Father, she still pursued, does Mr. Bounderby ask me to love him? Really, my dear, said Mr. Gradgrind, it is difficult to answer your question. Difficult to answer it, yes or no, father? Certainly, my dear, because... Here was something to demonstrate, and it set him up again. Because the reply depends so materially, Louisa, on the sense in which we use the expression. Now, Mr. Bounderby does not do you the injustice, and does not do himself the injustice, of pretending to anything fanciful, fantastic, or, I am using synonymous terms, sentimental. Mr. Bounderby would have seen you grow up under his eyes, to very little purpose, if he could so far forget what is due to your good sense, not to say his, as to address you from any such ground. Therefore, perhaps the expression itself, I merely suggest this to you, my dear, may be a little misplaced. What would you advise me to use in its stead, father? Why, my dear Louisa, said Mr. Gradgrind, completely recovered by this time, I would advise you, since you ask me, to consider this question as you have been accustomed to consider every other question, simply as one of tangible fact. The ignorant and the giddy may embarrass such subjects with irrelevant fancies and other absurdities that have no existence, properly viewed, really no existence, but it is no compliment to you to say that you know better. Now, what are the facts of this case? You are, we will say, in round numbers, twenty years of age. Mr. Bounderby is, we will say, in round numbers, fifty. There is some disparity in your respective years, but in your means and positions there is none. On the contrary, there is a great suitability. Then the question arises, is this one disparity sufficient to operate as a bar to such a marriage? In considering this question, it is not unimportant to take into account the statistics of marriage, so far as they have yet been obtained in England and Wales. I find, on reference to the figures, that a large proportion of these marriages are contracted between parties of very unequal ages, 
and that the elder of these contracting parties is in rather more than three-fourths of these instances the bridegroom it is remarkable as showing the wide prevalence of this law that among the natives of the british possessions in india also in a considerable part of china and among the kalmuks of tartary the best means of computation yet furnished us by travellers yield similar results the disparity i have mentioned therefore almost ceases to be a disparity and virtually all but disappears what do you recommend father asked louisa her reserved composure not in the least affected by these gratifying results that i should substitute for the term i used just now for the misplaced expression louisa returned her father it appears to me that nothing can be plainer confining yourself rigidly to fact the question of fact you state yourself is does mr bounderby ask me to marry him yes he does the sole remaining question then is shall i marry him i think nothing can be plainer than that shall i marry him repeated louisa with great deliberation precisely and it is satisfactory to me as your father my dear louisa to know that you do not come to the consideration of that question with the previous habits of mind and habits of life that belong to many young women no father she returned i do not i now leave you to judge for yourself said mr gradgrind i have stated the case as such cases are usually stated among practical minds i have stated it as the case of your mother and myself was stated in its time the rest my dear louisa is for you to decide from the beginning she had sat looking at him fixedly as he now leaned back in his chair and bent his deep-set eyes upon her in his turn perhaps he might have seen one wavering moment in her when she was impelled to throw herself upon his breast and give him the pent-up confidences of her heart but to see it he must have overleaped at a bound the artificial barriers he had for many years been erecting between himself and all those subtle essences of humanity which will elude the utmost cunning of algebra until the last trumpet ever to be sounded shall blow even algebra to wreck the barriers were too many and too high for such a leap he did not see it with his unbending utilitarian matter-of-fact face he hardened her again and the moment shot away into the plumbless depths of the past to mingle with all the lost opportunities that are drowned there removing her eyes from him she sat so long looking silently towards the town that he said at length are you consulting the chimneys of the coketown works louisa there seems to be nothing there but languid and monotonous smoke yet when the night comes fire bursts out father she answered turning quickly of course i know that louisa i do not see the application of the remark to do him justice he did not at all she passed it away with a slight motion of her hand and concentrating her attention on him again said father i have often thought that life is very short this was so distinctly one of his subjects that he interposed it is short no doubt my dear still the average duration of human life is proved to have increased of late years the calculations of various life assurance and annuity offices among other figures which cannot go wrong have established the fact i speak of my own life father oh indeed still said mr gradgrind i need not point out to you louisa that it is governed by the laws which govern lives in the aggregate while it lasts i would wish to do the little i can and the little i am fit for what does it matter 
Mr. Gradgrind seemed rather at a loss to understand the last four words, replying, How, matter? What matter, my dear? Mr. Bounderby, she went on, in a steady, straight way, without regarding this, asked me to marry him. The question I have to ask myself is, shall I marry him? That is so, father, is it not? You've told me so, father. Have you not? Certainly, my dear. Let it be so. Since Mr. Bounderby likes to take me thus, I am satisfied to accept his proposal. Tell him, father, as soon as you please, that this was my answer. Repeat it, word for word, if you can, because I would wish him to know what I said. It's quite right, my dear, retorted her father approvingly, to be exact. I will observe your very proper request. Have you any wish in reference to the period of your marriage, my child? None, father. What does it matter? Mr. Gradgrind had drawn his chair a little nearer to her and taken her hand, but her repetition of these words seemed to strike with some little discord on his ear. He paused to look at her, and still holding her hand, said, Louisa, I have not considered it essential to ask you one question, because the possibility implied in it appeared to me to be too remote, but perhaps I ought to do so. You have never entertained in secret any other proposal. Father, she returned almost scornfully, what other proposal can have been made to me? Whom have I seen? Where have I been? What are my heart's experiences? My dear Louisa, returned Mr. Gradgrind, reassured and satisfied, you correct me justly. I merely wish to discharge my duty. What do I know, father, said Louisa, in her quiet manner, of tastes and fancies, of aspirations and affections, of all that part of my nature in which such light things may have been nourished? What escape have I had from problems that could be demonstrated and realities that could be grasped? As she said it, she unconsciously closed her hand, as if upon a solid object, and slowly opened it, as though she were releasing dust or ash. "'My dear,' assented her eminently practical parent, "'quite true, quite true.' "'Why, father,' she pursued, "'what a strange question to ask me. The baby preference that even I have heard of as common among children has never had its innocent resting place in my breast. You have been so careful of me.' that I never had a child's heart. You've trained me so well that I never dreamed a child's dream. You've dealt so wisely with me, father, from my cradle to this hour, that I never had a child's belief or a child's fear. Mr. Gradgrind was quite moved by his success and by this testimony to it. My dear Louisa, said he, you abundantly repay my care. Kiss me, my dear girl. So his daughter kissed him, detaining her in his embrace, he said, I may assure you now, my favourite child, that I am made happy by the sound decision at which you have arrived. Mr. Bounderby is a very remarkable man, and what little disparity can be said to exist between you, if any, is more than counterbalanced by the tone your mind has acquired. It has always been my object so to educate you, as that you might, while still in your early youth, be, if I may so express myself, almost any age. Kiss me once more, Louisa. Now, let us go and find your mother. Accordingly, they went down to the drawing-room, where the esteemed lady with no nonsense about her was recumbent as usual, while Sissy worked beside her. She gave some feeble signs of returning animation when they entered, and presently, 
the faint transparency was presented in a sitting attitude. Mrs. Gradgrind, said her husband, who had waited for the achievement of this feat with some impatience, allow me to present you to Mrs. Bounderby. Oh, said Mrs. Gradgrind, so you have settled it. Well, I'm sure. I hope your health may be good, Louisa, for if your head begins to split as soon as you are married, which was the case with mine, I cannot consider that you are to be envied, though I have no doubt you think you are, as all girls do. However, I give you joy, my dear, and I hope you may now turn all your illogical studies to good account. I'm sure I do. I must give you a kiss of congratulation, Louisa, but don't touch my right shoulder, for there's something running down it all day long. And now you see, whimpered Mrs. Gradgrind, adjusting her shawls after the affectionate ceremony, I shall be worrying myself morning, noon and night to know what I am to call him. Mrs. Gradgrind, said her husband solemnly, what do you mean? Whatever I am to call him, Mr. Gradgrind, when he's married to Louisa, I must call him something. It's impossible, said Mrs. Gradgrind, with a mingled sense of politeness and injury, to be constantly addressing him and never giving him a name. I cannot call him Josiah, for the name is insupportable to me. You yourself wouldn't hear of Joe, you very well know. Am I to call my own son-in-law Mr? Not, I believe, unless the time has arrived, when, as an invalid, I am to be trampled upon by my relations. Then what am I to call him? Nobody present having any suggestion to offer in the remarkable emergency, Mrs. Gradgrind departed this life for the time being, after delivering the following codicil to her remarks already executed. As to the wedding, all I ask Louisa is, and I ask it with a fluttering in my chest, which actually extends to the soles of my feet, that it may take place soon. Otherwise, I know, it is one of those subjects I shall never hear the last of. When Mr. Gradgrind had presented Mrs. Bounderby, Sissy had suddenly turned her head, and looked in wonder, in pity, in sorrow, in doubt, in a multitude of emotions, towards Louisa. Louisa had known it and seen it without looking at her. From that moment she was impassive, proud and cold, held Sissy at a distance, changed to her altogether. Chapter 16 Mr. Bounderby's first disquietude on hearing of his happiness was occasioned by the necessity of imparting it to Mrs. Sparsit. He could not make up his mind how to do that, or what the consequences of the step might be whether she would instantly depart bag and baggage to Lady Scadgers, or would positively refuse to budge from the premises, whether she would be plaintive or abusive, tearful or tearing, whether she would break her heart or break the looking-glass, Mr. Bounderby could not at all foresee. However, as it must be done, he had no choice but to do it. So, after attempting several letters and failing in them all, he resolved to do it by word of mouth. On his way home, on the evening he set aside for this momentous purpose, he took the precaution of stepping into a chemist's shop and buying a bottle of the very strongest smelling salts. "'By George,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'if she takes it in the fainting way, I'll have the skin off her nose at all events.' But in spite of being thus forearmed, he entered his own house with anything but a courageous air, and appeared before the object of his misgivings, like a dog who was conscious of coming direct from the pantry. "'Good evening, Mr. Bounderby.' "'Good evening, ma'am. 
good evening he drew up his chair and mrs sparsit drew back hers as who should say your fireside sir i freely admit it it is for you to occupy it all if you think proper don't go to the north pole ma'am said mr bounderby thank you sir said mrs sparsit and returned though short of her former position mr bounderby sat looking at her as with the points of a stiff sharp pair of scissors she picked out holes for some inscrutable ornamental purpose in a piece of cambric an operation which taken in connection with the bushy eyebrows and the roman nose suggested with some liveliness the idea of a hawk engaged upon the eyes of a tough little bird she was so steadfastly occupied that many minutes elapsed before she looked up from her work when she did so mr bounderby bespoke her attention with a hitch of his head mrs sparsit ma'am said mr bounderby putting his hands in his pockets and assuring himself with his right hand that the cork of the little bottle was ready for use i have no occasion to say to you that you are not only a lady born and bred but a devilish sensible woman sir returned the lady this is indeed not the first time that you have honoured me with similar expressions of your good opinion mrs sparsit ma'am said mr bounderby i am going to astonish you yes sir returned mrs sparsit interrogatively and in the most tranquil manner possible she generally wore mittens and she now laid down her work and smoothed those mittens i am going ma'am said bounderby to marry tom gradgrind's daughter yes sir returned mrs sparsit i hope you may be happy mr bounderby oh indeed i hope you may be happy sir and she said it with such great condescension as well as with such great compassion for him that bounderby far more disconcerted than if she had thrown her workbox at the mirror or swooned on the hearthrug corked up the smelling salts tight in his pocket and thought now confound this woman who could have ever guessed that she would take it in this way i wish with all my heart sir said mrs sparsit in a highly superior manner somehow she seemed in a moment to have established a right to pity him ever afterwards that you may be in all respects very happy well ma'am returned bounderby with some resentment in his tone which was clearly lowered though in spite of himself i am obliged to you i hope i shall be do you sir said mrs sparsit with great affability but naturally you do of course you do a very awkward pause on mr bounderby's part succeeded mrs sparsit sedately resumed her work and occasionally gave a small cough which sounded like the cough of conscious strength in forbearance well ma'am resumed bounderby under these circumstances i imagine it would not be agreeable to a character like yours to remain here though you would be very welcome here oh dear no sir i could on no account think of that mrs sparsit shook her head still in her highly superior manner oh dear no sir i could on no account think of that mrs sparsit shook her head still in her highly superior manner and a little changed the small cough coughing now as if the spirit of prophecy rose within her but had better be coughed down however ma'am said bounderby there are apartments at the bank where a born and bred lady as keeper of the place would be rather a catch than otherwise and if the same terms i beg your pardon sir 
you were so good as to promise that you would always substitute the phrase annual compliment well ma'am annual compliment if the same annual compliment would be acceptable there why i see nothing to part us unless you do sir returned mrs sparsett the proposal is like yourself and if the position i should assume at the bank is one that i could occupy without descending lower in the social scale why of course it is said bounderby if it was not ma'am you don't suppose that i should offer it to a lady who has moved in the society you have moved in not that i care for such society you know but you do mr bounderby you are very considerate you'll have your own private apartments and you'll have your coals and your candles and all the rest of it and you'll have your maid to attend upon you and you'll have your light porter to protect you and you'll be what i take the liberty of considering precious comfortable said bounderby sir rejoined mrs sparsett say no more in yielding up my trust here i shall not be free from the necessity of eating the bread of dependence she might have said the sweet bread for that delicate article in a savoury brown sauce was her favourite supper and i would rather receive it from your hand than from any other therefore sir i accept your offer gratefully and with many sincere acknowledgments for past favours and i hope sir said mrs sparsett concluding in an impressively compassionate manner i fondly hope that miss gradgrind may be all you desire and deserve nothing moved mrs sparsett from that position any more it was in vain for bounderby to bluster or to assert himself in any of his explosive ways mrs sparsett was resolved to have compassion on him as a victim she was polite obliging cheerful hopeful but the more polite the more obliging the more cheerful the more hopeful the more exemplary altogether she the forlorner sacrifice and victim he she had that tenderness for his melancholy fate that his great red countenance used to break out into cold perspirations when she looked at him meanwhile the marriage was appointed to be solemnized in eight weeks time and mr bounderby went every evening to stone lodge as an accepted wooer love was made on these occasions in the form of bracelets and on all occasions during the period of betrothal took a manufacturing aspect dresses were made jewellery was made cakes and gloves were made settlements were made and an extensive assortment of facts did appropriate honour to the contract the business was all fact from first to last the hours did not go through any of those rosy performances which foolish poets have ascribed to them at such times neither did the clocks go any faster or any slower than at other seasons the deadly statistical recorder in the gradgrind observatory knocked every second on the head as it was born and buried it with his accustomed regularity so the day came as all other days come to people who will only stick to reason and when it came there were married in the church of the florid wooden legs that popular order of architecture josiah bounderby esquire of coketown to louisa eldest daughter of thomas gradgrind esquire of stone lodge m p for that borough and when they were united in holy matrimony they went home to breakfast at stone lodge aforesaid there was an improving party assembled on the auspicious occasion who knew what everything they had to eat and drink was made of 
and how it was imported or exported and in what quantities and in what bottoms whether native or foreign and all about it the bridesmaids down to little jane gradgrind were in an intellectual point of view fit helpmates for the calculating boy and there was no nonsense about any of the company after breakfast the bridegroom addressed them in the following terms ladies and gentlemen i am josiah bounderby of corktown since you have done my wife and myself the honour of drinking our healths and happiness i suppose i must acknowledge the same though as you all know me and know what i am and what my extraction was you won't expect a speech from a man who when he sees a post says that's a post and when he sees a pump says that's a pump and he's not to be got to call a post a pump or a pump a post or either of them a toothpick if you want a speech this morning my friend and father-in-law tom gradgrind is a member of parliament and you know where to get it i'm not your man however if i feel a little independent when i look around this table to-day and reflect how little i thought of marrying tom gradgrind's daughter when i was a ragged street boy who never washed his face unless it was at a pump and that not oftener than once a fortnight i hope i may be excused so i hope you like my feeling independent if you don't i can't help it i do feel independent now i have mentioned and you have mentioned that i am this day married to tom gradgrind's daughter i'm very glad to be so it has long been my wish to be so i've watched her bringing up and i believe she's worthy of me at the same time not to deceive you i believe i'm worthy of her so i thank you on both our parts for the good will you've shown towards us and the best wish i can give the unmarried part of the present company is this i hope every bachelor may find as good a wife as i have found and i hope every spinster may find as good a husband as my wife has found shortly after which oration as they were going on a nuptial trip to Lyon, in order that mr bounderby might take the opportunity of seeing how the hands got on in those parts and whether they too required to be fed with gold spoons the happy pair departed for the railroad the bride in passing down the stairs dressed for her journey found tom waiting for her flushed either with his feelings or the vinous part of the breakfast what a game girl you are to be such a first-rate sister lou whispered tom she clung to him as she should have clung to some far better nature that day and was a little shaken in her reserved composure for the first time oh bounderby's quite ready said tom time's up good-bye i shall be on the lookout for you when you come back i say my dear lou ain't it uncommonly jolly now end of part eight Part Nine of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a Weekly Journal, Saturday, May the twenty seventh, eighteen fifty four. Chapter Seventeen, A Sunny Midsummer Day. There was such a thing sometimes, even in Coketown. 
seen from a distance in such weather coketown lay shrouded in a haze of its own which appeared impervious to the sun's rays you only knew the town was there because you knew there could have been no such sulky blotch upon the prospect without a town a blur of soot and smoke now confusedly tending this way now that way now aspiring to the vault of heaven now murkily creeping along the earth as the wind rose and fell or changed its quarter a dense formless jumble with sheets of cross light in it that showed nothing but masses of darkness coketown in the distance was suggestive of itself though not a brick of it could be seen the wonder was it was there at all it had been ruined so often that it was amazing how it had borne so many shocks surely there was never such fragile chinaware as that of which the millers of coketown were made handle them never so lightly and they fell to pieces with such ease that you might suspect them of having been flawed before they were ruined when they were required to send labouring children to school they were ruined when inspectors were appointed to look into their works they were ruined when such inspectors considered it doubtful whether they were quite justified in chopping people up with their machinery they were utterly undone when it was hinted that perhaps they need not always make quite so much smoke besides mr bounderby's gold spoon which was generally received in coketown another prevalent fiction was very popular there it took the form of a threat whenever a coketowner felt he was ill-used that is to say whenever he was not left entirely alone and it was proposed to hold him accountable for the consequences of any of his acts he was sure to come out with the awful menace that he would sooner pitch his property into the atlantic this had terrified the home secretary within an inch of his life on several occasions however the coketowners were so patriotic after all that they never had pitched their property into the atlantic yet but on the contrary had been kind enough to take mighty good care of it so there it was in the haze yonder and it increased and multiplied the streets were hot and dusty on that summer day and the sun was so bright that it even shone through the heavy vapour drooping over coketown and could not be looked at steadily stokers emerged from low underground doorways into factory yards and sat on steps and posts and palings wiping their swarthy visages and contemplating coals the whole town seemed to be frying in oil there was a stifling smell of hot oil everywhere the steam engine shone with it the dresses of the hands were soiled with it the mills throughout their many stories oozed and trickled it the atmosphere of those fairy palaces was like the breath of the simoon and their inhabitants wasting with heat toiled languidly in the desert but no temperature made the melancholy mad elephants more mad or more sane their wearisome heads went up and down at the same rate in hot weather and cold wet weather and dry fair weather and foul the measured motion of their shadows on the walls was the substitute coketown had to show for the shadows of rustling woods while for the summer hum of insects it could offer all the year round from the dawn of monday to the night of saturday the whir of shafts and wheels drowsily they whirred all through this sunny day making the passenger more sleepy and more hot as he passed the humming walls of the mills some blinds and sprinklings of water a little cooled the main streets and the shops but the mills and the courts and alleys baked at a fierce heat down upon the river that was black and thick with dye 
some coketown boys who were at large a rare sight there rowed a crazy boat which made a spumous track upon the water as it jogged along while every dip of an oar stirred up vile smells but the sun itself however beneficent generally was less kind to coketown than hard frost and rarely looked intently into any of its closer regions without engendering more death than life so does the eye of heaven itself become an evil eye when incapable or sordid hands are interposed between it and the things it looks upon to bless mrs sparsett sat in her afternoon apartment at the bank on the shadier side of the frying street office hours were over and at that period of the day in warm weather she usually embellished with her genteel presence a managerial boardroom over the public office her own private sitting-room was a story higher at the window of which post of observation she was ready every morning to greet mr bounderby as he came across the road with the sympathising recognition appropriate to a victim he had been married now a year and mrs sparsett had never released him from her determined pity a moment the bank offered no violence to the wholesome monotony of the town it was another red brick house with black outside shutters green inside blinds a black street door up two white steps a brazen door plate and a brazen door handle full stop it was a size larger than mr bounderby's house as other houses were from a size to half a dozen sizes smaller in all other particulars it was strictly according to pattern mrs sparsett was conscious that by coming in the evening tide among the desks and writing implements she shed a feminine not to say also aristocratic grace upon the office seated with her needlework or netting apparatus at the window she had a self-laudatory sense of correcting by her ladylike deportment the rude business aspect of the place with this impression of her interesting character upon her mrs sparsett considered herself in some sort the bank fairy the townspeople who in their passing and repassing saw her there regarded her as the bank dragon keeping watch over the treasures of the mine what those treasures were mrs sparsett knew as little as they did gold and silver coin precious paper secrets that if divulged would bring vague destruction upon vague persons generally however people whom she disliked were the chief items in her ideal catalogue thereof for the rest she knew that after office hours she reigned supreme over all the office furniture and over a locked-up iron room with three locks against the door of which strong chamber the light porter laid his head every night on a truckle bed that disappeared at cockcrow further she was lady paramount over certain vaults in the basement sharply spiked off from communication with the predatory world and over the relics of the current day's work consisting of blots of ink worn-out pens fragments of wafers and scraps of paper torn so small that nothing interesting could ever be deciphered on them when mrs sparsett tried lastly she was guardian over a little armoury of cutlasses and carbines arrayed in vengeful order above one of the official chimney-pieces and over that respectable tradition never to be separated from a place of business claiming to be wealthy a row of fire-buckets vessels calculated to be of no physical utility on any occasion but observed to exercise a fine moral influence almost equal to bullion on most beholders a deaf serving woman and the light porter completed mrs sparsett's empire the deaf serving woman was rumoured to be wealthy 
and a saying had for years gone about among the lower orders of coketown that she would be murdered some night when the bank was shut for the sake of her money it was generally considered indeed that she had been due some time and ought to have fallen long ago but she had kept her life and her situation with an ill-conditioned tenacity that occasioned much offence and disappointment mrs sparsett's tea was just set for her on a pert little table with its tripod of legs in an attitude which she insinuated after office hours into the company of the stern leathern-topped long board table that bestrode the middle of the room the light porter placed the tea-tray on it knuckling his forehead as a form of homage thank you bitzer said mrs sparsett thank you ma'am returned the light porter he was a very light porter indeed as light as in the days when he blinkingly defined a horse for girl number twenty all is shut up bitzer said mrs sparsett all is shut up ma'am and what said mrs sparsett pouring out her tea is the news of the day anything well ma'am i can't say that i've heard anything particular our people are a bad lot ma'am but that is no news unfortunately what are the restless wretches doing now asked mrs sparsett merely going on in the old way ma'am uniting and leaguing and engaging to stand by one another it is much to be regretted said mrs sparsett making her nose more roman and her eyebrows more coriolanian in the strength of her severity that the united masters allow of any such class combinations yes ma'am said bitzer being united themselves they ought one and all to set their faces against employing any man who is united with any other man said mrs sparsett they have done that ma'am returned bitzer but it rather fell through ma'am i do not pretend to understand these things said mrs sparsett with dignity my lot having been originally cast in a widely different sphere and mr sparsett was a powler being also quite out of the pale of any such dissensions i only know that these people must be conquered and that it is high time it was done once and for all yes ma'am returned bitzer with a demonstration of great respect for mrs sparsett's oracular authority you couldn't put it clearer i'm sure ma'am as this was his usual hour for having a little confidential chat with mrs sparsett and as he had already caught her eye and seen that she was going to ask him something he made a pretence of arranging the rulers inkstands and so forth while that lady went on with her tea glancing through the open window down into the street has it been a busy day bitzer asked mrs sparsett not a very busy day my lady about an average day he now and then slided into my lady instead of ma'am as an involuntary acknowledgment of mrs sparsett's personal dignity and claims to reverence the clerks said mrs sparsett carefully brushing an imperceptible crumb of bread and butter from her left-hand mitten are trustworthy punctual and industrious of course yes ma'am pretty fair ma'am with the usual exception he held the respectable office of general spy and informer in the establishment for which volunteer service he received a present at christmas over and above his weekly wage he had grown into an extremely clear-headed cautious prudent young man who was safe to rise in the world his mind was so exactly regulated that he had no affections or passions all his proceedings were the results of the nicest and coldest calculation and it was not without cause that mrs sparsett habitually observed of him 
that he was a young man of the steadiest principle she had ever known. Having satisfied herself on his father's death that his mother had a right of settlement in Coketown, this excellent young economist had asserted that right for her, with such a steadfast adherence to the principle of the case that she had been shut up in the workhouse ever since. It must be admitted that he allowed her half a pound of tea a year, which was weak in him, first, because all gifts have an inevitable tendency to pauperise the recipient, and secondly, because his only reasonable transaction in that commodity would have been to buy it for as little as he could possibly give, and sell it for as much as he could possibly get, it having been clearly ascertained by philosophers that in this is comprised the whole duty of man, not a part of man's duty, but the whole. "'Pretty fair, ma'am, with the usual exception, ma'am,' repeated Bitzer. "'Oh,' said Mrs. Sparsett, shaking her head over her teacup, and taking a long gulp. "'Mr. Thomas, ma'am. I doubt Mr. Thomas very much, ma'am. I don't like his ways at all.' "'Bitzer,' said Mrs. Sparsett, in a very impressive manner, "'do you recollect my having said anything to you respecting dames?' "'I beg your pardon, ma'am. It's quite true.' that you did object to names being used, and they're always best avoided. Please to remember that I have a charge here, said Mrs. Sparsett, with her air of state. I hold a trust here, Bitzer, under Mr. Bounderby. However improbable both Mr. Bounderby and myself might have deemed it years ago that he would ever become my patron, making me an annual compliment, I cannot but regard him in that light. For Mr. Bounderby, I have received every acknowledgment of my social station, and every recognition of my family descent, that I could possibly expect. More, far more. Therefore, to my patron, I will be scrupulously true, and I do not consider, I will not consider, I cannot consider, said Mrs. Sparsett, with the most extensive stock on hand of honour and morality, that I should be scrupulously true, if I allowed names to be mentioned under this roof, that are unfortunately, most unfortunately, no doubt of that, connected with his. Bitzer knuckled his forehead again, and again begged pardon. No, Bitzer, continued Mrs. Sparsett, say an individual, and I will hear you. Say Mr. Thomas, and you must excuse me. With the usual exception, ma'am, said Bitzer, trying back, of an individual. Ah! Oh. Mrs. Sparsett repeated the ejaculation, the shake of the head over her teacup, and the long gulp, as taking up the conversation again, at the point where it had been interrupted. "'An individual, ma'am,' said Bitzer, "'has never been what he ought to have been since he first came into the place. He is a dissipated, extravagant idler. He is not worth his salt, ma'am. He wouldn't get it either if he hadn't a friend and relation at court, ma'am.' "'Ah!' Oh, said Mrs. Sparsett, with another melancholy shake of her head. "'I only hope, ma'am,' pursued Bitzer, "'that his friend and relation may not supply him with the means of carrying on. "'Otherwise, ma'am, we know out of whose pocket that money comes.' "'Ah!' sighed Mrs. Sparsett again, with another melancholy shake of her head. "'It's to be pitied, ma'am. "'The last party I've alluded to is to be pitied, ma'am,' said Bitzer. "'Yes, Bitzer,' said Mrs. Sparsett. "'I have always pitied the delusion.' always as to an individual ma'am said bitzer dropping his voice and drawing nearer he is as improvident as any of the people in this town and you know what their improvidence is ma'am no one could wish to know it better than a lady of your eminence does 
they would do well returned mrs sparsit to take example by you bitzer thank you ma'am but since you do refer to me now look at me ma'am i've put by a little ma'am already that gratuity which i receive at christmas ma'am i never touch it i don't even go to the length of my wages though they're not high ma'am why can't they do as i have done ma'am what one person can do another can do this again was among the fictions of coketown any capitalist there who had made sixty thousand pounds out of sixpence always professed to wonder why the sixty thousand nearest hands didn't each make sixty thousand pounds out of sixpence and more or less reproached them every one for not accomplishing the little feat what i did you can do why don't you go and do it as to their wanting recreations ma'am said bitzer it's stuff and nonsense i don't want recreations i never did and i never shall i don't like em as to their combining together there are many of them i have no doubt that by watching and informing upon one another could earn a trifle now and then whether in money or good will and improve their livelihood then why don't they improve it ma'am it's the first consideration of a rational creature and it's what they pretend to want pretend indeed said mrs sparsit i'm sure we are constantly hearing ma'am till it becomes quite nauseous concerning their wives and families said bitzer why look at me ma'am i don't want a wife and family why should they because they are improvident said mrs sparsit yes ma'am returned bitzer that's where it is if they were more provident and less perverse ma'am what would they do they would say while my hat covers my family or while my bonnet covers my family as the case may be ma'am i have only one to feed and that's the person i most like to feed to be sure assented mrs sparsit eating muffin thank you ma'am said bitzer knuckling his forehead again in return for the favour of mrs sparsit's improving conversation would you wish a little more hot water ma'am or is there anything else that i could fetch you nothing just now bitzer thank you ma'am i shouldn't wish to disturb you at your meals ma'am particularly tea knowing your partiality for it said bitzer craning a little to look over into the street from where he stood but there's a gentleman been looking up here for a minute or so ma'am and he's come across as if he was going to knock that is his knock ma'am no doubt he stepped to the window and looking out and drawing his head again confirmed himself with yes ma'am would you wish the gentleman to be shown in ma'am i don't know who it can be said mrs sparsit wiping her mouth and arranging her mittens a stranger ma'am evidently what a stranger can want at the bank at this time of the evening unless he comes upon some business for which he is too late i don't know said mrs sparsit but i hold a charge in this establishment for mr bounderby and i will never shrink from it if i see him if to see him is any part of the duty i have accepted i will see him use your own discretion bitzer here the visitor all unconscious of mrs sparsit's magnanimous words repeated his knock so loudly that the light porter hastened down to open the door while mrs sparsit took the precaution of concealing her little table with all its appliances upon it in a cupboard and then decamped upstairs that she might appear if needful with the greater dignity if you please ma'am the gentleman would wish to see you said bitzer with his light eye at mrs sparsit's keyhole so mrs sparsit who had improved the interval by touching up her cap took her classical features downstairs again and entered the board-room in the manner of a roman matron 
going outside the city walls to treat with an invading general the visitor having strolled to the window and being then engaged in looking carelessly out was as unmoved by this impressive entry as man could possibly be he stood whistling to himself with all imaginable coolness with his hat still on and a certain air of exhaustion upon him in part arising from excessive summer and in part from excessive gentility for it was to be seen with half an eye that he was a thorough gentleman made to the model of the time weary of anything and putting no more faith in anything than lucifer i believe sir quoth mrs sparsett you wish to see me i beg your pardon he said turning and removing his hat pray excuse me humph thought mrs sparsett as she made a stately bend five-and-thirty good-looking good figure good teeth good voice good breeding well-dressed dark hair bold eyes all which mrs sparsett observed in her womanly way like the sultan who put his head in the pail of water merely in dipping down and coming up again please to be seated sir said mrs sparsett thank you allow me he placed a chair for her but remained himself carelessly lounging against the table i left my servant at the railway looking after the luggage very heavy train and vast quantity of it in the van and strolled on looking about me exceedingly odd place will you allow me to ask you if it's always as black as this in general much blacker returned mrs sparsett in her uncompromising way is it possible excuse me you are not a native i think no sir returned mrs sparsett it was once my good or ill fortune as it may be before i became a widow to move in a very different sphere my husband was a powler beg your pardon really said the stranger was mrs sparsett repeated a powler powler family said the stranger after reflecting a few moments mrs sparsett signified assent the stranger seemed a little more fatigued than before you must be very much bored here was the inference he drew from the communication i am the servant of circumstances sir said mrs sparsett and i have long adapted myself to the very governing power of my life very philosophical returned the stranger and very exemplary and laudable and it seemed to be scarcely worth his while to finish the sentence so he played with his watch-chain wearily may i be permitted to ask sir said mrs sparsett to what i am indebted for the favour of assuredly said the stranger much obliged to you for reminding me i am the bearer of a letter of introduction to mr bounderby the banker walking through this extraordinarily black town while they were getting dinner ready at the hotel i asked a fellow whom i met one of the working people who appeared to have been taking a shower-bath of something fluffy which i assumed to be the raw material mrs sparsett inclined her head raw material where mr bounderby the banker might reside upon which misled no doubt by the word banker he directed me to the bank fact being i presume that mr bounderby the banker does not reside in the edifice of which i have the honour of offering this explanation no sir returned mrs sparsett he does not thank you i had no intention of delivering my letter at the present moment nor have i but strolling on to the bank to kill time and having the good fortune to observe at the window towards which he languidly waved his hand then slightly bowed a lady of very superior and agreeable appearance i considered that i could not do better than take the liberty of asking that lady where mr bounderby the banker does live which i accordingly venture with all suitable apologies to do 
the inattention and indolence of his manner were sufficiently relieved to mrs sparsett's thinking by a certain gallantry at ease which offered her homage too here he was for instance at this moment all but sitting on the table and yet lazily bending over her as if he acknowledged an attraction in her that made her charming in her way banks i know are always suspicious and officially must be said the stranger whose lightness and smoothness of speech were pleasant likewise suggesting matter far more sensible and humorous than it ever contained which was perhaps a shrewd device of the founder of this numerous sect whosoever may have been that great man therefore i may observe that my letter here it is from the member for this place gradgrind whom i have had the pleasure of knowing in london mrs sparsett recognised the hand intimated that such confirmation was quite unnecessary and gave mr bounderby's address with all needful clues and directions in aid thousand thanks said the stranger of course you know the banker well yes sir rejoined mrs sparsett in my dependent relation towards him i have known him ten years quite an eternity i think he married gradgrind's daughter yes said mrs sparsett suddenly compressing her mouth he had that honour the lady is quite a philosopher i am told indeed sir said mrs sparsett is she excuse my impertinent curiosity pursued the stranger fluttering over mrs sparsett's eyebrows with a propitiatory air but you know the family and know the world i am about to know the family and may have much to do with them is the lady so very alarming her father gives her such a portentously hard-headed reputation that i have a burning desire to know is she absolutely unapproachable repellently and stunningly clever i see by your meaning smile you think not you have poured balm into my anxious soul as to age now forty five and thirty mrs sparsett laughed outright a chit said she not twenty when she was married i give you my honour mrs powler returned the stranger detaching himself from the table that i never was so astonished in my life it really did seem to impress him to the utmost extent of his capacity of being impressed he looked at his informant for full a quarter of a minute and appeared to have the surprise in his mind all the time i assure you mrs powler he then said much exhausted that the father's manner prepared me for a grim and stony maturity i am obliged to you of all things for correcting so absurd a mistake pray excuse my intrusion many thanks good day he bowed himself out and mrs sparsett hiding in the window-curtain saw him languishing down the street on the shady side of the way observed of all the town what do you think of the gentleman bitzer she asked the light porter when he came to take away spends a deal of money on his dress ma'am it must be admitted said mrs sparsett that it's very tasteful yes ma'am returned bitzer if that's worth the money besides which ma'am resumed bitzer while he was polishing the table he looks to me as if he gamed it's immoral to game said mrs sparsett it's ridiculous ma'am said bitzer because the chances are against the players whether it was that the heat prevented mrs sparsett from working or whether it was that her hand was out she did no work that night she sat at the window when the sun began to sink behind the smoke she sat there when the smoke was burning red when the colour faded from it when darkness seemed to rise slowly out of the ground and creep upward 
upward to the house-tops up the church steeple up to the summits of the factory chimneys up to the sky without a candle in the room mrs sparsett sat at the window with her hands before her not thinking much of the sounds of evening the whooping of boys the barking of dogs the rumbling of wheels the steps and voices of passengers the shrill street cries the clogs upon the pavement when it was their hour for going by the shutting up of shop shutters not until the light porter announced that her nocturnal sweetbread was ready did mrs sparsett arouse herself from her reverie and convey her dense black eyebrows by that time creased with meditation as if they needed ironing out upstairs oh you fool said mrs sparsett when she was alone at her supper whom she meant she did not say but she could scarcely have meant the sweetbread end of part nine everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price ba da ba ba ba